Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So today is the day that we reach the end of our year-long lectionary trek, and our gospel reading is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is not the first time during the church year that we have read this feeding story. The Markan version of it appears on the seventh Sunday after Trinity, which was July 18th this year, a sermon I'm sure everyone vividly remembers. It raises a question as I was preparing this week. uh, How do you preach a story you've already preached during a given church year? One could reuse the same sermon, but that feels a tad lazy. I also considered pointing out that John's gospel doesn't have a Last Supper account like the other three gospels do, and that many scholars think that John chapter 6 is his Eucharistic text, precisely because of the formula that we heard in verse 11 of our reading this morning, where Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples. And further, I would have pointed out that this story is linked to the bread of life discourse that follows, in which Jesus states plainly that except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. But I'm not going to do that today. At least I'm not going to be so on the nose about it. So what are we going to talk about in this story today? Well, I'd like to use it to think about God's way of providing for us. So in the first part of our reading this morning, Jesus poses a problem to his disciples. And in this way, John's version of the story differs from how the other gospels present it. In the others, the disciples bring the problem of the hungry crowds to Jesus' attention. But here... It's our Lord who brings it up. And we're told that he lifted up his eyes and noticed the great crowds amassing. Now that phrase in biblical narrative, lifted up his eyes, is pretty significant in that it anticipates a major turn of events. So we might think back to Genesis 18, when Abraham sits under the oak at Mamre, and he lifted up his eyes and he saw the three mysterious guests who brought him news that his wife Sarah, elderly wife Sarah, would be with child. So here, Jesus raises up his eyes to see the crowds forming, the same crowds which will afford him the opportunity to see a miracle. So he raises the question to Philip, whence shall we buy bread? Now John lifts the veil for us. He lets us see what's really going on under the surface, Because Jesus said this to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, Philip does not rise to the occasion here. He merely points out the massive task. Not even 200 pennyworth or denarii would supply enough bread. For perspective, one denarius was the average wage for a day's work. So not even in eight to ten months' work would they be able to come up with the funds for the amount of food that was needed. Almost immediately, and somewhat comically, St. Andrew, who was St. Peter's brother, brings over a lad with five loaves and two fish. But he realizes it's just a drop in the bucket. 
What are they among so many? So at the end of verse 9, we're left with a seemingly insurmountable problem. A problem that's that's meant to take us back to the wilderness wandering of Israel in the Exodus, where the people complained about a lack of food, only to be fed with the manna from heaven. And so Jesus has the crowd gather together and sit down. He takes the loaves, he gave thanks, and he gave it to his disciples, using that formula that's reminiscent of the words of institution, one of the reasons why this chapter is a proto-Eucharistic treatise. The miracle here in John is the multiplication of loaves and fish so that all who were present were fed, not just a little bit, but to the point that they were satiated. In fact, there was so much left over that Jesus instructed his disciples to gather what remained. And it was enough to fill 12 baskets, 12 being a significant number in the scriptures. There were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament And our Lord chose 12 apostles to follow him. That there are 12 baskets highlights the continuity between Old Testament Israel and the community that Jesus births, which we now know as the church. Because really, these aren't two distinct or disparate communities, but the old has been elevated into the unfolding mystery of God's revelation and become the church as it looks in the present. Now, the gospel authors love to report for us the response of the crowds to Jesus, and John is no different. He records them saying, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Now, we might think this praise is an understatement. Jesus isn't a prophet, after all. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So are they underselling our Lord? Well, it's true that they didn't have the Nicene Creed to help them understand exactly who Christ was. But that they called him a prophet actually confirms that he is the Messiah because it's an allusion to Deuteronomy 18.18, which was, by the way, the Old Testament reading for evening prayer on Friday, which I'm sure everybody already knew. But in that passage, God promises Moses that I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words into his mouth. So who is this prophet that had been promised of old to Moses? Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the prophet. So the theme or message of our reading today is that God provides for his people. Just like he sent manna from heaven to the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness, So he sent bread to those who were following Jesus. And so he sends the provision of his Holy Eucharist to us, his church, today. But what I really want to focus in on right now are the leftovers, the 12 basketfuls. Now, insofar as this is a story about the Eucharist, we play this out each week. Because usually, when we consecrate the host at the altar during the Mass, we consecrate more host then we have communicants, so we're, with, we're left with leftovers. We have more than we need. The remaining hosts get gathered up and stored in saboria, little metal baskets. And the saborias are put uh, downstairs in the ombre, which is built into the wall next to the altar, 
or up here in the tabernacle that hangs over the altar. And as long as sacrament is stored in either, their respective sanctuary lights are left on. Our sanctuary light hangs there from the ceiling. And the purpose of the sanctuary light is to continually remind us of God's provision for us and his presence among us. And that is further accentuated when we use the reserved sacrament. We take out the host from the sacrament and we bring it out into the world when we visit the sick or the infirm or the shut-in. But the leftovers point us to a bigger truth, namely that God grants us more than we can ask or imagine, according to Ephesians 3.20. In our gospel today, he not only feeds thousands of people, he gives them leftovers, emphasizing the gratuitousness of his grace. God didn't have to create us at all, but he did. He didn't have to redeem us once we betrayed him, but he did. He didn't have to feed these people who were too short-sighted to pack a lunch to come see him in the wilderness, but he did. He didn't have to provide leftovers for them, but he did. So it's not a surprise that we have these 12 basketfuls at the end of the story. It's completely in keeping with the pattern of how God works in the world giving us infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. We find ourselves here at the end of yet another church year, and it's a good opportunity for us to gather up our basketfuls. What does that mean? Well, it means reflecting on how God has blessed us in this past year. So how has he blessed St. Paul's church I can think of many ways since last Advent. Since then, we've been able to fully reopen. We can reflect on how God has protected our parish and parishioners during a pandemic where we had only very few cases. We were able to have in-person Christmas and Easter services. Our music and choir programs have returned and sound as good as ever. In spite of COVID generally slowing church growth across the United States, we were able to have six confirmations and three receptions during a successful Episcopal visitation just a month ago. We've had a number of baptisms. We've even had some weddings. We've gotten to bury the dead, both members of our parish, but also people from the community who needed Christian burial. Our missions committee has ensured that we continue to make our community a better place through their hard work, allowing us to offer or participate in offering gospel light and hope to a dark world that desperately needs it. As a church, as the Anglican province of America, we've entered into a new era by having a peaceful transition of power as Bishop Chandler Holder Jones has taken the reins from the retiring Bishop Walter Grundorf. It's been a busy year. It's been a strange year in many ways. But God has been faithful over and over again to provide for us. And there are probably more things that you would add to that list, both for St. Paul's and for you as an individual or families. But when we take a moment to appreciate what God has done for us, it should produce in us a spirit of thanksgiving. Like the prayer that we pray at morning and evening prayer says, We, thine unworthy servants, do give thee most humble and hearty thanks for all thy goodness and loving kindness to us 
and to all men. And this time of year is perfect for entering into a mindset of thanksgiving, especially as we enter into next week. But thanksgiving should always give way to resolve. Now it's been said that New Year's resolutions go in one year and out the other. And that's true. And it's probably because it's very difficult for us to change ourselves without God's empowerment. But as baptized Christians, we have the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. We have the sacraments affording us strength and pushing us towards holiness and righteousness. And our propers today work wonderfully with this theme because our gospel reading urges us to be introspective about what God has done for us this year, but our collect urges us to push forward. Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people, that they, plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works, may by thee be plenteously rewarded. The past couple weeks, we've had two other preachers, Father Mason and Father Thomas, and they have both taught us about the importance of faith. Father Mason spoke about faith and its relationship to hope and love, the other two theological virtues. Last week, Father Thomas talked to us about faith's role as quickening our hearts, the foundation of all of our spiritual progress. In both cases, I think the common denominator between them was that faith is what propels us forward. And we saw a great act of faith in our reading this morning, the little lad who brought the five loaves and the two fish. He stands in great contrast to the disciples who don't seem to know what to do. So I encourage, exhort, and challenge you to spend some time in faithful prayer and reflection this week about our upcoming church year. Pray for God to clarify what he was teaching you last year and pray, him what, pray to him about what he wants from you this coming year. What does he want you to give with your time? How does he want you to use your unique gifts that only you have to edify the church and proclaim his gospel? And how does he want you to give financially? These are all important things for us to meditate on as we enter into this new liturgical year together. But above all, and through all, we have to remember our dependence on him and resolve to come back to his altar again and again and again. Although we are unworthy through our manifold sins and wickedness to offer unto thee any sacrifice, Yet we beseech thee to accept this, our bounden duty and service. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.